0: Subjects act and objects are acted upon. So even if you are the most valuable sex object in a culture that tells little girls that 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 is what our value is, even if you're the most valuable sex object, you're still in a position that is inferior or subordinate to sexual subjects. Men get to be sexual subjects. They get to be the choosers, the validators of other men, the validators of women and their worth. And when you think about how we validate men, you know, we, we raise them to view their bodies um, as these tools to master their environment, as Sarah Mernon put it. Uh, whereas we raise little girls to view their bodies as these projects that are never done, that are never good enough. and constantly This
1: have is to be Unconditioning. Discovering the voice within with Whitney and Jenkins. Hello and welcome to the 63rd episode of Unconditioning Discovering the Voice Within, where I bring on guests and we talk about the inner authentic voice and the challenges and the rewards that come from following it. This week, I have with me Dr. Caroline Heldman, Caroline is a political scientist and a chair of the Gender, Women, and Sexuality Studies program at Occidental College in Los Angeles. She is also the executive director of the Representation Project and a political commentator for Spectrum and CNN International. Dr. Heldman has published seven books on gender justice and politics, and her work has been featured in numerous documentaries, including Misrepresentation and The Mask You Live In. She co-founded the New Orleans Women's Shelter, the Lower Ninth Ward Living Museum, End Rape on Campus, EROC, Faculty Against Rape, and led the End Rape Statute of Limitations that successfully abolished the time limit on prosecuting rape in California. She is the board president of TEP Center, the first civil rights museum in New Orleans, and she's the chair of the board of Altira's Institute, a nonprofit fighting for stronger democracy. She also just released a book called The Sexy Lie, which we talk about, as well as many other issues that are currently happening in our society with an angle from her perspective and wisdom of studying these subjects for many years. I had a wonderful time speaking with Dr. Caroline Heldman, and I know that you are going to gain a lot from her wisdom too. So here she is. You have a very specific passion and theme within your work. And in order for you to be able to be the thought leader that you are on all these subjects, you had to go through a lot of things yourself in your own life, I believe, to be able to guide others. So what was it that brought you to want to be the leader in your life?
0: I would say that my interest in feminism was really piqued by my sexist father who uh he passed away a decade ago and and had quite a a shift at the end of his life but I grew up in a household with one brother and five sisters and the girls were not allowed to cut their hair or wear pants Um, my father would often say that he doesn't listen to chick musicians he doesn't read you know chick books or or literature and so the sexism was was pretty palpable in my household. And I always thought it was strange that my brother was allowed to do things um, that none of the sisters were allowed to do. And I was also raised Pentecostal evangelical. So for folks who don't know what that religion is, uh we do believe that Jesus, uh, you know, that there's going to be a return to earth, um, that there's going to be um. A, essentially people who follow the, the very specific teachings of that religion are going to go to heaven and everybody else is going to be left on earth and it's going to be absolutely horrible for those who are left on earth. Um, and so I grew up with a lot of um, fear around being left behind. In fact, there was even a series called Left Behind, uh, a series of films, and I saw them as a young child. And I remember. Um, not to get too graphic, but being so terrified that you know I bedwetting was a thing after those films, it was that that terrifying because um, I you know I believed that this was pretty imminent, and so constantly fearing um, that um, that I was going to be left behind and all of my family members were going to be taken to heaven. Um, also, not allowed to do much in church, right? Being told that women shouldn't speak, so the only only time we were uh, speaking in church was um, was singing or leading song service, so that was allowed. And so I grew up in what I would call a very gender-repressive rep- household, and when uh, a friend of the family uh, slipped me a book as uh, a, a tween, uh, the book was the, Femin- the Feminine Mystique by Betty Friedan, uh, it was mind blowing. I had no idea that, you know, women could be thought of as full human beings. I had no concept that women uh, could be in spaces where they were the masters of their own destiny, and so it was very eye opening. And I started actually kind of covertly uh, sharing this information with people in my Sunday school class. Um, I should also point out that I was homeschooled uh, as a child uh, because my parents were worried about the very uh, worldly influences I might encounter. And so um, it really was kind of a closed loop. I should also mention that we we didn't have a television um, set. There was uh, a neighbor's television set that sometimes we would wheel over uh, once every few years when Roots came on. Oddly enough, my parents were hyper-conservative and religious and also cared deeply about racial justice. Um, and so it was this odd combination of Uh, conservatism and kind of a a liberal notion that at least when it came to race, not gender, but at least when it came to race, um, we needed to be compassionate and inclusive. And as much as I'm very critical of my father, um, and as much as I have moved away from the church, and I'm now a pretty hardcore atheist, um, his, his kind of edict or his drive was a Bible verse, right? That if As Jesus said, if you have done it onto the least of these, my brethren, you have done it onto me. In other words, um, you need to be serving people who are the most vulnerable, who are the most threatened in society. And so um, I I think that his his approach to that is definitely something I use now in my social justice work, although I will say um, not in a way that my dad necessarily (laughs) would endorse or ever has
1: endorsed. Wow. Yeah. So so your connection to the outside world was very limited and you were set up with all of these boundaries surrounding you. And that book seemed to be what propelled you to sort of have a different perspective that you wouldn't have had otherwise. Absolutely, Whitney Ann. And it was this moment too, where I realized uh, as someone who liked to write short stories,
0: mostly revolving around my cats or Sasquatch, who I was constantly looking for Uh, Because I was told she was real so you know that was my passion as a child was cats and Sasquatch. Um, I did a lot of writing but then I realized uh, when reading the feminine mystique uh, that um, that words could change the world it literally changed my world and I understood that whatever life path I was going to be following uh, I was going to be using words to bring about social change. And so uh, I guess it's not too surprising that I'm a professor with, you know, I've I written a lot of books and trying to do precisely that.
1: Mm, absolutely. So you, you said that you have sisters. Were you able to share this book with them as well?
0: Um, yes and no. So there were certain sisters I knew were uh, going to, uh, you know, Wrap me out. And so uh, my sister, Kathleen, certainly uh, the sister that was closest in age. uh, So she and I both kind of had this feminist awakening as tweens and uh, staged a few uh, run away from home uh, events, which didn't get very far and uh, ended up, you know, getting us into a lot of trouble. But um, by and large, you know, most, most of my family is still back in, in the small town of Yakult, washington uh, it, it was a town of 500 when i was there and i think it's pushing around a thousand residents now
1: oh yeah so this inner drive um drove you in your inner voice your authenticity that you were connected to by reading this book uh to leave that town at some point so what was the thing that allowed you to do that
0: well, Whitney, I'm critical a bit of homeschooling, but I will say one thing that it did do was accelerate my learning. Uh, I, you know, public education is paced at, at some this the lower end or the slower end of the classroom for obvious reasons. As an educator, I understand that you can't leave folks behind. But what that means is that um, you can move probably more quickly. I'm really critical of homeschooling because, uh, when it's, it's done in order to maintain an ideological barrier around your child, I think it can be pretty harmful, but I will say that homeschooling allowed me to graduate from high school early and go to college early. And, uh, I was a, a young teenager. And, um, as soon as I finished up my BA, uh, in business administration, uh, I, hopped on a plane, uh, still a teenager, uh, hopped on a plane to Washington, D.C. to work for Jolene Unsold, the third district of Washington State. And this was my first trip away from Yakult, Washington. So I landed in Washington, D.C. and saw uh, my first day there, the biggest rat I had ever seen. And I'm a huge animal lover, and it doesn't matter how big the rat is, I'm going to love that rat. But I, I thought it was a dog. And of course I'm trying to pet it and it's running away from me. Uh, so I had you know, these this hillbilly child, hillbilly teen uh, in DC experiences. And it was just an incredible awakening working um, as a legislative uh, correspondent in Congress. Uh, and then applying for my PhD and, and going up to Rutgers, uh, it was the only women in politics PhD program in the world at the time. Uh, so it was um, certainly a radical shift in my worldview, moving to the East Coast and these big cities, having come
1: from Yakult, Washington. Absolutely. From Washington to Washington. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Excellent. So in your PhD studies, what was your focus specifically? My focus
0: uh, was on, uh, well, gender and politics, but I also am a a quantitative methodologist. So it was a combination of being a data scientist and a gender theorist, which is, I'm going to say in academia, pretty unusual, uh, Mm -hmm. but beneficial for kind of Getting a deep understanding of of the mechanisms of how something works, and then a, a better understanding of how it's actually functioning today using data. So, uh, I'm putting myself to sleep describing what I worked on, what I what I actually worked on, what my real passion that the stories and the the data stories I was digging into um, had to do with consumer activism and how we've used boycotting, bycotting, socially conscious investing, uh, direct consumer protests, you know, the Boston Tea Party on um, using the marketplace to advance political concerns, and specifically, um, I started off with a focus on on women and how women have uniquely used consumer activism. Because uh, even before we got the vote, we you know when when we're not allowed in the halls of power formally, we flexed our economic muscle in political ways. Uh, and then I broadened it to look um, at how it's been used by racially marginalized groups. So essentially, any group that's been marginalized over time has used marketplace channels when they lack political power. And so um, that was my dissertation, which I later published uh, as a book, I think 20 years later, (laughs) as a book. Um, And I'm a a political scientist, but I will say that my academic career has moved um, very far away from my original position. Uh, I am uh, currently in the Department of Critical Theory and Social Justice which is a more theory-based department. It's odd for a data scientist to be in that department, but uh, it, it fits because I do a lot of social justice work. Um, and I've really broadened my focus to look at um, systems of power. So gender, uh, race, ability, sexuality, body size, and age. So I look at ageism, I look at fat phobia, I look at transphobia, I look at uh, racism. I look at, at how, uh, how these systems are very similar in, their, in, in how they, they maintain themselves. Uh, in terms of bias, so if you know about sexism, you actually quite know quite a bit about racism. If you know about racism, you actually know quite a bit about the mechanisms of fat phobia, because all of these systems are put in place to maintain an existing social order that benefits certain people. So when you understand that, you start to see the patterns, um, whether it's stigmatization, whether it's stereotyping, um, you know, whether it's regressive laws that reflect stigmatization and stereotyping. And so, uh, I focus a, a lot of my work is uh, obviously focused on women, but I, it's always through an intersectional lens, may, meaning it's uh, women who are also otherwise marginalized. So, I'm focusing on um, women of color, right? On Black women, on South Asian women, on Native American women. Uh, I'm focused on Latin women. Uh, I'm, I'm focused on, uh, you know, Japanese American women and their representations in popular cinema. Whether I'm looking at politics or media, mm-hmm. um, I'm focusing on, for example, how fat women are represented. And I should say, fat is not an insult. We're reclaiming that term, right? It is simply a descriptive term. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, you know, really pushing hard. I think that's the next kind of front in terms of social justice, uh, mm-hmm. focusing on fat phobia as a social justice issue, given the fact that. Um, that about 80% of our body size is determined by our genetics, uh, also by the fact that 95% of diets fail. So this like, notion that somehow we, our body size is both uh, associated with some sort of moral inferiority if we're fat. And also the idea that um, that somehow, um, you know, we, it's linked to health and we have control over it. Both of it's just all myths. You can't tell somebody's health based on their body size. And so I really do think that's the next frontier. Also a focus on older women and ageism and, uh, women with disabilities. And I do a lot of work around, um, sexual violence prevention as, uh, as it affects all of these intersectionally marginalized women.
1: Yeah, so taking like a very, very specific focus and looking at the big picture of like how everything is affected within that. um, What is something that you learned that surprised you in all of that research?
0: Mm. I think the thing that surprises me the most, and maybe this is my focus on um, research and activism around sexual violence, is how much... um, we as women internalize the burden of sexual violence, how much we both don't recognize it as sexual violence. We recognize it as something that's wrong. I have a lot of students who will come to me and say, this thing happened, but they don't call it rape. And then when um, it's identified as rape or sexual assault. Uh, we really do go through this process where we try to determine our role in it and what we could have done better, right? What was I wearing? What did I say? What signals was I giving? So how much we have internalized something that we know to be Fundamentally and profoundly wrong. And anyone who's experienced sexual violence, violence and it's not just women, uh, it's disproportionately women, and, and men are 99% of perpetrators. So there's certainly a gender element here. Um, it's, I think it's important to note that. And also important to note that gender nonconforming people and trans folks face higher rates of sexual violence than anyone else. Um, but I think it's remarkable that women know. That we shouldn't have to experience this, but we still take on so much of the shame and the stigma and the burden of preventing it. Um, and we don't do this with any other violent crime because it's at some fundamental level. Um, you know, I think that that gender-based violence is a way to maintain the existing gender social order. And so we accept and we normalize a lot of the practices that go along with that. Um, So for example, women are supposed to be sexual gatekeepers and men are supposed to be sexual pushers, right? And so we set it up where consent is always, it's often hazy because of of the gender norms when it comes to interacting, whether it's a hookup or a relationship. Uh, And so, yeah, it's surprising to me how much women internalize this. But then again, perhaps it shouldn't be surprising given that, um, you know, rape and sexual assault, these are the only crimes where we put the victim on trial.
1: Right, yeah, the cause and effects of how our society
0: is structured. Yeah, it's really well put, Whitney, and it's this, we structure society through our institutions, our norms, our practices, our laws, and then it plays out on an individual level that's quite shocking.
1: Yeah.
0: Shocking in the sense that we know we don't deserve it, and yet we're still taking on that responsibility. And I will say having, so I go to a lot of trials to support survivors with an organization called Stand with Survivors. And we were recently at the Danny Masterson trial, and he is a member of Scientology. Mm-hmm. And Scientology, as you're pointing out, structural the structures here, Scientology had these young women whom he had raped um, go through classes where they had to determine their role in causing the rape. And you don't often get it that obvious or that latent, but I think that sort of thing happens to a greater or lesser degree across institutions throughout the United
1: States. Yeah, wow. So you've been studying these subjects for years now, a while. Um, have you witnessed changes within this and where do you see it going in the near future?
0: That's a great question. Um, I often get bogged down in thinking that nothing has shifted, nothing has changed, but of course it absolutely has. And I think it's important to recognize you know, the women who were the, the first, the front line. Uh, we're talking about the second wave of the feminist movement and just an asterisk on that. Um, Most of the major leaders and thinkers of that movement were women of color. So when we label it as just a white woman's movement, because the press covered it that way, we're actually missing uh, much of the activism of the movement. And so just looking at, you know, someone like Betty Friedan or Angela Davis, right, doing this incredible work on down the line, Audre Lorde, uh, writers, activists, um, a lot has shifted since then. So if we think of this in terms of progress, uh, socially, politically, and economically. um, Socially, I think women have taken two steps forward and one step back by embracing sexual objectification as being empowering, which is the subject of my new book. Um, Politically, we are making inroads. We're now at uh, representation 25 percent in the Congress, which you know we're 51% of the population, but that's gone up tremendously in the past half a century. Um, economically, even though um, you know we still have a massive wage gap, and certainly women of color have a bigger wage gap than white women, uh, we are closing that wage gap. Progress is very slow. Uh, but women have moved into professions. Uh, Women are the majority of students undergraduate for many degrees now. Uh, We've had about uh, 50% of women uh, enrolled or 50% of college students who are enrolled are women starting in 1984, so we're definitely seeing some progress. Uh, Rates of sexual violence Uh, remain high. Um, I think there are a lot of, you know, the the wage gap is closing very slowly. There's a lot of sexual harassment in the workplace. Uh, There are a lot of experiences that we we have as women that remind us that we're second-class citizens, and if you're a woman of color, a disabled woman, or fat woman, or an older woman, you're a third or fourth or fifth-class citizen, depending upon um, how, you know, those intersections really layer on top of one another, Um, but I will say that we've definitely made progress, and I think that because we have the memory of a goldfish because you know social media has of course made this worse I love social media but we really don't know history young people haven't known history for a long time in our country and with social media there's actually no kind of impetus to even be connected to previous generations or to know um what has gone before but I think it's important for young young feminists to keep in mind that Um, yeah, this battle has been going on for a really long time. We are still in the, in the fight, uh, but much progress has been made.
1: So your book, The Sexy Lie, what, was there something specifically that inspired you to write this book?
0: That's a great question. So many great questions, Um, (laughs) Whitney-Ann. So The Sexy Lie, uh, The War on Women's Bodies and How to Fight Back, is a project that is not kidding, 20 years in the making. So I started writing and publishing on this subject as a cub academic in the early 2000s. And uh, the motivation for writing the book was uh, a gift from my no media homeschooling upbringing because when I was finally exposed to popular culture, uh, the images of what people were saying were empowering for women were jarringly not empowering. And I'm not talking about from a prudish perspective or, you know, cover up or that sort of the the slut shaming. Um, Specifically, I'm talking about the idea that Um, the second uh, wave of the feminist movement brought with it this sexual revolution, which very quickly got taken over by marketers and corporations and then sold back to women as empowering. But at the end of the day, being a sex object is just theoretically and empirically not not empowering. So um, theoretically, it's not empowering because we simplify the world uh, in our thinking. Humans have to in order to approach the world in a way that that we can, is digestible. Um, And the the dichotomy at play with sex objects is the subject object dichotomy. So to make it simple, subjects act and objects are acted upon. So even if you are the most valuable sex object in a culture that tells little girls that, that that is what our value is, even if you're the most valuable sex object, you're still in a position that is inferior or subordinate to sexual subjects. Men get to be sexual subjects. They get to be the choosers, the validators of other men, the validators of women and their worth. And when you think about how we validate men, you know, we, we raise them to view their bodies um, as these tools to master their environment, as Sarah Mernon put it, uh, whereas we raise little girls to view their bodies as these projects that are never done, that are never good enough and constantly have to be worked on. And this is where marketers come in, right? Because the bigger the gap, between where we think our body is and where we think our body needs to be, uh, the more products we'll buy. So they present to us impossible standards of beauty, of thinness uh, that are constantly appearing all over the place in thousands of ads. And so what has happened is marketers are driving this idea that women need to be sex objects because it makes them money. And we really need to break out of that because that's the theoretical side of why it's not empowering and and was very obviously not empowering to me as someone who was coming into media with fresh eyes as a a teen. Um, But there's also so much empirical data that it's not empowering. We know that the more girls and women view themselves as sex objects, the lower their self-esteem, they're more likely to have an eating disorder Uh, the higher their rates of body shame, uh, the lower their aspirations and ambitions, the lower their confidence, the lower uh, their desire to be in a leadership position. So believing the cultural script that we are supposed to be sexy and that's how we get power is fundamentally damaging to girls and women. And so, um, yeah, I felt a deep, like, desire to get that information out into the world. And when I did, it was a new thing, which was surprising to me. I just figured a lot of people were writing about it. But you actually have to go back to the 1970s and radical feminists to find people making these critiques. And what happened between the radical feminist critiques of the 1970s and when I started really focusing on this in the early 2000s, what happened is corporations just convinced women using mostly celebrities who didn't have a lot of power early on in their careers uh, as, as tools to promote this lie. And so, um,
1: I did a, a TED talk and it was marvelous, actually, I, I was going to bring it up, um, but you are, so go ahead.
0: <laughs> well, and that's where I realized there's such a hunger for it. Yeah. And then I went through the juggernaut of the big time publishing process and mostly heard, you know, I don't want to be talking about depression and eating disorders and sexual violence. And, and I do make the argument in the book that uh, the first step in violence toward a group is dehumanizing it. And what is sexual objectification? It's the process of turning a human being into an object. So the widespread, normalized, expected sexual objectification of women is the first step in violence against us because it's dehumanizing.
1: Yeah, I've, I've been thinking about this I've been thinking about the novel Lolita and how it's very clearly about child abuse and pedophilia and how that term Lolita has now been glamorized and women are now like using it almost like a badge of honor.
0: Lolita, the book is troubling because, well, that's certainly how I read it and you read it. I think there are a lot of people, especially men, who are reading it as the glamorization of control, power, and dominance over a child. Um, The film certainly glamorized it, Uh, and the fact that girls are and young women are embracing this now is an attempt to maximize their status as a sex object, even though, as I pointed out, you're ultimately always giving your power away to somebody else who's validating you if that's your standard for, for value. And I shouldn't, I should take a step back and say I'm not blaming girls and women at all. We're born into this system. By the way, it's a system that's always, uh, it's a game that's always stacked against us because Uh, you will constantly try to be the most perfect sex object in order to get the most heterosexual attention in order to validate your worth and existence on this planet. And you'll spend the amount of time that it takes to get three PhDs over the course of your lifetime doing all of this ridiculous habitual body monitoring where we're thinking about our bodies, uh, constantly working on improving uh, hair, makeup, et cetera. And I'm not saying move away from that entirely. I think there's a lot of joy to be found in makeup. I wish men could find that joy too. Uh, But um, at the end of the day, we spend a lot of our time chasing something that ultimately we're going to age out of. And it's a fascinating, uh, kind of experiment too, with young women who, who think they're never going to age. Um, they're never going to get old and it inspires intergenerational conflict between mothers and daughters and between younger women and older women and the erasure of middle-aged and older women, um, which is just profoundly sad to me. It actually harms female friendships. And so, uh, all of this to say that um, it's really hard to kind of expose it and reveal it, but the Lolita thing that you're talking about has everything to do with celebrating kind of male dominance over girls. That is what that is. And I think it's it's also of course a horrifying uh, celebration of pedophilia.
1: Yeah, I
0: agree. And the fact that it's like high art, the fact that that's how how dominance over teen girls gets normalized and celebrated in our culture through the vehicle of high art should be, you know, uh, sound some alarm bells for folks who care about the status of girls and women in our culture.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And young women. And I, I would I would never want to be like growing up as a young woman right now with all of the social media and pressures, like on top of all of these things as well. So what are your opinions on this and how can we perhaps come to a better structure or solution?
0: So I just published The Sexy Lie, as I uh, mentioned, after 20 years and the reason that it took so long to finally publish it after the, you know, the viral TEDx video and uh, other articles that were really well received. So I knew there was a hunger. All of this to say, not to pat myself on the back, which is fine for women to do, but that's not why I'm, I'm saying this. But I knew there was a hunger everywhere I go. Women want to talk to me about this. Um, the reason I waited, though, was because the social media landscape was shifting so radically that every time I would have a new draft, it would be outdated. And I finally just had to give up because, as you're pointing out social media has taken everything that girls and women have experienced for a long time in a consumerist society that makes money off of their body dissatisfaction and put it on steroids. So uh, yes, we now have you know this kind of bifurcated self where you are a young woman with all of the pressures of being sexy and hot and thin, uh, and you're a different person online than you are in real life. But of course, who you are online and whether you get validation for that has profound effects on your well-being, your depression, ideas about yourself in the real world. And so it is not surprising to me that we are witnessing a teen mental health crisis. Um, Certainly, it's being driven by the actual mechanics of social media. We have research on this, so we know that with the advent and widespread adoption of social media by young people in 2012, uh, starting in 2012, over the course of the decade, what we've seen is a decline in real-life relationships, which has an effect on your mental health, Uh, also a decline in the average number of hours you sleep, which is a primary driver, for example, of suicidal ideation, but certainly well-being uh, overall. But I would go beyond that and say, it's not just the mechanism of it, it's also the content that folks are being exposed to. So girls are being, uh, you know, pressured uh, with impossible images of being both a sex object and being, you know, incredibly thin and airbrushed. Um, And boys are being really pushed with these ideas, these artificial false ideas of traditional masculinity, which is of course so fragile that you constantly have to be uh, proving it. Um, but these, these notions that uh, of the man box that boys have to be in control, they have to be in charge, uh, they can't have any emotions. Um, in fact, I, I write and think a lot about how we create the man box in ways that are so damaging to boys and men. And it's not organic, right? We create the man box by telling boys to be everything that girls are not, to reject the feminine, to not cry, to not throw like a girl, don't show your emotions. And then somehow, we, we so we raise you know, 49% of our population to build their core identity around rejecting everything that we're teaching the other 51% that they need to be. And somehow we scratch our heads when they are they don't respect women or don't fundamentally see women as full human beings. And I think it—that that is a fact that runs way deep that we don't talk about. I think it would be it's scary for women to acknowledge that. Um, but boys and girls and gender non-conforming folks are getting terrible messages through social media that put more pressure on them than any previous generation. We beta tested this technology on children, and now we are seeing the results of that. And um, we as uh, adult humans who put this technology into the world without properly you know, doing our due diligence to see how it would affect them, uh, shame on us. Um, also, we can immediately shift that, right, by, uh, by more, um, thoughtful ideas about what folks are being exposed to through media literacy, through putting on your armor and going out into the world every day and understanding how these images are affecting us. And I think it's important too to keep in mind um, that if we didn't live in a world that sexually objectified girls and women, we would probably have a lot more sex and a lot better sex because there's a huge difference between being a sex object whose sexuality exists for others and being a sexual subject whose sexuality exists for yourself. So being sexual and being sexy are not the same thing. In fact, I would argue that being sexy gets in the way of being sexual, mostly because of something called spectatoring. When you get into a sex act, and your your ideas about pleasure are constantly being interrupted by thoughts about you know thigh fat and oh, does my you know my boob flopping over here look terrible? I mean, we're constantly monitoring our bodies all day long. Girls and women are in a way that's always surprising to you know my male students. But also, especially when we get into sex, we start really thinking about what our body looks like for our partner or partners, and it gets in the way of sexual pleasure. So, yeah, being a sex object actually is two thumbs down when it comes to uh, having great sex.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I I was gonna like bring that up because that stuck out to me in your TED talk when you were speaking about pleasure and when it seems to be correlated specifically with social media and connection, like with human connection, it seems like the pleasure of connecting with a human actually has been replaced with like a dopamine hit of a like.
0: That's a great observation, Whitney Ann, Uh, and it's an addiction model, right? So we know that both porn and social media companies are deeply invested in the addiction model where they ramp up the content, uh, which is why you see uh, social media de- posts that are uh, involve conflict and debate will get more views and they'll push those further because it keeps you hooked. Um, and in porn, we actually see the escalation of Um, violent acts uh, and degrading acts in order to keep you addicted and take it to the next level of addiction. It's the same model that video games use. And so it's really troubling to see all of this power in the hands of a small number of companies um, that are dictating our sexual lives, our social lives. And Gail Dines has written a fantastic book called Pornland in which she talks about how pornographers have essentially... Um, hijack the sexual pleasure of young millennials and now Gen Z and Gen Alpha, uh, where they're having less sex and they're having less pleasurable sex, but they're consuming more porn than ever. And that's the dopamine hit, which is not an IRL experience, which can elevate the human soul.
1: And and actually causes physical dysfunction too, among men as well.
0: It does much higher rates of erectile dysfunction and other uh, forms of uh, sexual dysfunction for men uh, and for women. You know, if you're watching porn, because I've done porn research, uh, you're not learning where the clitoris is and just want to put a PSA out that uh, that's actually the site of orgasm. So, as much as you're being told it's all of these other orifices and holes, uh, which is great in sex, I don't know how explicit we can get here, but. As far as you want to,
1: it's all fine.
0: Well, I just think it's fascinating that if you watch porn, you wouldn't know that the clitoris, uh, by and large, unless you're watching like feminist lesbian porn, you wouldn't know that the clitoris is the site of, of orgasm for women, uh, or for folks with uh, a vagina and a vulva, right? Um, and it, we're told that there's a G spot and all. Sure, there's all sorts of pleasure points, but the actual site of orgasm is the clitoris. And a lot of young people and a lot of middle-aged people and a lot of old people don't know this. Um, And the the, um, corollary for me with men, the site of their orgasm is their penis, right? That is their site of orgasm. But imagine we ran all of this, uh, uh, basically a campaign uh, trying to convince men that their inner thigh was their side of orgasm. Um, that is what we have done with women. We have convinced them um, that it's uh, interior. And the reason for this, there's a very, and Cote wrote a great piece on this in friggin' 1970, but there's a long history of this, that uh, the heteronormativity, right, of penetrative sex, of having a penis in the vagina. So if the side of orgasm is the clitoris and it's on the outside of the body, you don't actually need penetrative sex in order to have an orgasm. Um, penetrative sex can be really cool and fun. I'm nothing against that in any way, shape, or form, but let's be real here. Why is it that we don't know where the site of women's uh, pleasure is? It's because so much of porn and the way we talk about women's sexual pleasure revolves around heterosexual male pleasure.
1: Thank you, thank you for sharing that.
0: Just a side PSA,
1: Whitney Anne.
0: I want people to have better sex. I want them to have more sex. I want women to have orgasms, and it's
1: irritating to me that cultural
0: constraints are in the way of women having great sex.
1: Right, right. So. So pleasure seems to be a piece that we need to get back to, and which could probably like empower women to not be so objectified in in some way.
0: That's a great point, Whitney. And yes, um, centering our own pleasure would require a sea shift in the way we think, uh, because so much. If you're a heterosexual woman, your notions about what brings you pleasure likely revolve around men. Uh, It's fascinating to look at the orgasm gap, right? It's about two to one with heterosexual hookups. You know, who's having an orgasm almost 100% of the time they're having sexual activity? Lesbians. It tells you everything you need to know about, you know, what's happening in the world of of sex and cultural uh, scripts.
1: Yeah. So is there like a overall message that you would love to share with people about The the Sexy Lie and your book and where they can find you and your work and what you're doing within the world and how they can subscribe to you and just be a part of everything that you're doing.
0: The overall theme of The Sexy Lie is that if you're a girl or woman, you've been born into a culture that does not have your best interests in mind. And if you buy into the notion that your value is your body and how valuable of a sex object you can be, that it has really detrimental effects. And I think it doesn't take much to convince girls and women of this. All I'm doing is just naming the experiences that we have that are really negative. That's what I'm doing, just giving you the language. But I think the bigger point of the book is um, that we don't have to take it lying down, right? That um, we, can't shift this culture probably because it's patriarchy plus capitalism and those are two really big systems but we can navigate it in a way that is humanizing for us we can recognize that we can limit its damage and so it's really a book of empowerment to say here's what it is this is why it's a problem this is who's pitching it to you and why this is who's making money off of it um this is how it affects you terrible effects Uh, and that's the the chapter that that a lot of women um, have written to me about and said, Oh, I connected with this. Um, and then here are all the tools to get around it. Like, here are all the tools to navigate it. You can't not wear makeup because you're seen as less professional in a professional setting. So don't shoot yourself in the foot um, by wearing no makeup, but you should know that if you're sexually objectified in the workplace, the only people, only women that doesn't affect are secretaries. So if you are in a, a position of middle management or in a position of authority and um, you dress in a way that promotes a sexual objectification, um, that it will be held against you. And all of this is not about slut shaming. All of this is to say the system is broken. This is how you navigate it. And I really believe, I strongly believe that you can't navigate it if you don't understand the problem and I don't think you can just go cold turkey and leave the culture. I don't I don't think that's the way to do it. So it's really an empowering book about all the tools and uh, you'll need to build your armor and then go out and fight it. And I do have all sorts of ideas of what you can do at the individual level, what you can do at in your family, uh your community, and then what you can do kind of at a structural level with media companies, with um, you know, political parties, with political leaders and, and laws and legislation. So um A lot of kind of let's do this, ladies, Um, and not in a way that's patronizing, right? And not in a way that says, oh, we can just change the world. I actually say, you know what? We can't. So let's change this little piece right here and let's make our lives better. Um, So you can uh, order The Sexy Lie. All of the proceeds are going to uh, an anti-sexual violence nonprofit. So if you just Google it, um, my website is drcarolineheldman.com. Uh, I, as I mentioned, am a professor and I publish on different subjects, um, but this is definitely my my passion, uh, is helping girls and women navigate a world that asks them to be dehumanized second class citizens. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, if you need any assistance with uh, rape survivorship and moving through that, I work a lot with folks who are going to go public and try to really help them put on to use the term again, help them put on armor for what comes next as a public survivor of rape or sexual assault. Um, And all of my social media handles are at Caroline Helman. Please get off Twitter. I'm trying to make the move over to Threads. And as we're recording this, Threads has uh, 30 million uh, (laughs) folks, which is really exciting. And I only say this because I think Mark Zuckerberg is uh, a slightly less offensive dude bro than Elon Musk, and I want to live in a world where we don't elevate either either of the archetypes that those men are.
1: Yeah, well, thank you so much for following your passion and offering this to the world. I think it's, it's super important and relevant at this moment in time, and I will add all of the show links into the notes uh, so that people can find you easily and effortlessly.
0: Thank you so much, Whitney-Ann, for using your platform and your voice to elevate ideas and help people work through the struggles in their lives. Really wonderful.
1: So I have one last question uh, to wrap up that I usually ask. And this question is, if your inner voice had a billboard, what would it say to the world?
0: (laughs) Oh, that's interesting. I'm not going to have a political career, so I actually get to say whatever I want. Um, Mm -hmm. My inner voice is pretty much a honey badger. Whitney Ann, <laughs> um, honey badger, right? I don't give a fuck. Um, if there was one thing I could impart to um, to young women, is uh, you're going to waste years of your life caring about what other people think of you, and and have that shape you, um, your time, your energy, everything goes toward that, uh, and that, yeah, it's just not giving a fuck about what other people think about your body or your loud voice or your loud hair. Um, you know, whatever's happening in your life, really decide who you are instead of letting the world, you know, pinball machine you around for a couple decades.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Don't waste your time.
0: <laughs> yes. Oh, that's a much more polite way of saying it. Winnie And thank you. <laughs>
1: Thank you so much for joining me this week. If you're listening and you like what you hear, please consider subscribing and rating this podcast as it really helps get this podcast out to other people who might be interested in hearing it but don't know about it yet. And also, if you'd like to contact me or reach me, you can reach me at unconditioningpodcast at gmail.com or unconditioningpodcast on Instagram. Thank you so much. And until next time. Stay tuned in to you.